Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Flying Baton. I'm so excited to bring you our guest today. Helen is an absolutely amazing, amazing flute player and teacher. I met her at Midwest a little while ago, and we'll get into the story of that in the interview. But, oh, my God, she just has such passion and energy and excitement for what she does and just has some amazing things to say, in particular about flute intonation. I think this interview is really going to blow your mind when it comes to flute intonation and how most of us are probably doing it uh, completely wrong. At least I was. (laughs) So we'll get into that in a second. But first, you know what time it is. This week's pick is Storm Chasing by William Owens, published by FJH. This programmatic work illustrates a variety of storm phenomenon. You can hear the band snapping their fingers in conjunction with rain sticks to surround the audience with the sound of raindrops. The woodwinds start with a silky swirling melody that gives way to a sudden shift into this gorgeous soaring trumpet melody. This work then takes us on an adventure with many twists and turns. If you really want to immerse your audience, there's an optional hurricane siren in the middle of the piece before a really rockin' low brass rock and roll kind of feature. It's a very, very cool piece. I discovered this work from my co-teacher, John, who was looking to add a greater number of pieces to our library from diverse composers. We just played it in our fall concert, and the kids absolutely loved it. In fact, when my eighth graders heard my seventh graders play it, They were instantly jealous and said that that song was their absolute favorite part of the whole concert. So I hope you enjoy Storm Chasing. If you would like to buy or listen to this work, check out the show notes or visit theflyingbaton.com.
Helen Blackburn is the artist teacher of flute at West Texas A&M University. Helen is also a principal flautist with the Dallas Opera Orchestra and a core member of Dallas's modern music ensemble, Voices of Change. She performs with her husband, marimba virtuoso Drew Lang, and is a regular extra with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and has numerous credits with major performing arts organizations. Playing flute is her passion, teaching and mentoring flute students is her calling, and she is thrilled to have a life that embraces both equally. All right, everybody, we are here with Helen Blackburn. Helen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to be here. Absolutely. I I just want to tell our listeners how we first met. So I attended your session at Midwest on beginning flute pedagogy, and it was absolutely amazing. It was probably the best session I went to in that entire weekend. And I said, man, I've got to get a lesson with her. And I asked you if we could do like a private lesson at Midwest, which you graciously agreed to. And we met in one of the rooms that wasn't being used. And you just blew my mind with like amazing flute knowledge. (laughs) That's all I know anything about. (laughs) So yeah, it was great. And and I was thinking, man, I really want to do an episode about flute. You're absolutely my first pick. I was like, I have to ask her Uh uh, because you're just you just have so much energy and excitement and you clearly love what you do so much. It's what I was put on this earth for. I, nothing else, just teaching flute. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was here. Okay, so first question that I ask everyone is, if you could stand on the mountaintop and proclaim something to band directors everywhere that they need to know about flute, what, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Well, there are about 47 things, but I'll start with them. Um, number one, do not teach kiss the hole and roll down. The flute needs to go under the, the lip. In the dead of the chin, instead of on the lip. So if you teach kiss the hole and roll down, you're setting yourself up and all your students for failure for the rest of life. So that's one. Number two is the flute is not a parallel instrument. Like we teach in marching band, where it's pulled back and straight out across your shoulder. It should be forward and down. And and that's kind of a life-changing thing, you know. I Do what you have to do for marching band. If I were a marching band director, I would defy all of the the rules that, you know, (laughs) And go with what works better better for flute players instead of setting them up for, for failure. You know, but a lot of times we, if you're not a, a really well-trained flutist, you, in your head, you have a picture of a flute player and they're sitting erect in their chair and their right elbow is on the back of their chair, you know, and, and their <laughs> flute is sticking straight out of the side. All of that is wrong. It should be forward and down. And then probably the, if, if I had three big things, the next one would be head joint alignment is probably the most crucial thing. And we'll probably get into that. But if you do not not pay really careful attention and make sure that your students are lining up their head joint in a neutral position and doing it the exact same way every single time, they're going to be in for all sorts of problems, you know, intonation, technique, all that. So are you speaking about alignment of the head joint Relative to the rest of the flute or relative to their face? Relative to the rest of the flute. Okay. And to, I'm, you know, but what I'm talking about is how they assemble the instrument. It's, you know, we take it for granted because when you put on a trumpet mouthpiece, trombone mouthpiece, clarinet mouthpiece, saxophone mouthpiece, you know, if you turn a trumpet mouthpiece left or right, it doesn't make any difference. You can, and if you turn a clarinet mouthpiece to the left or right, it, you can feel the difference and the students will turn their head. But if you roll a flute head joint out one millimeter one day, and in one millimeter the next day, it's a whole different instrument and something's going to suffer. Either they're going to have to change their hand position to accommodate or they're going to have to change their head position or they're just going to sound terrible. You know, <laughs> they're yeah. going to have very inconsistent tone and intonation. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I was, I was reading your handout, uh, the non-negotiables of playing the flute, which I love. Mm-hmm. It's great. Is it OK if we link that in the show notes? 
Yes. And I will send you a newer handout that I, one that I did this summer. They go together, you know, so I'll send you what, what do we call it? The proper care and beating of your beginner flute. So uh, <laughs> I did it with one of my former students who's a middle school band director. So it may have a few different things in there. So definitely share them across the world. <laughs> All right. Awesome. We'll totally link that. And one of the things I saw in that is you use, is it nail polish to help get the alignment consistent? I do. I use red nail polish. And my student and I argue about this. She's like, it can be any color. They can choose their color. I'm like, yes, as long as it's red. And I really feel strongly <laughs> about this because red is hard to ignore. So what I do, I line up the center of the embouchure hole with the center of the first open hole. If, if the students have an open hole beginner flute, which is what I recommend. They don't have an, an open hole flute. It would be the center of the, the key that is played by your left hand second finger. And you want to line, that's the neutral position. So the embouchure hole is basically aligned with the key. Some people just don't pay attention and they end up rolling out. And, and then that causes the student to bend their right wrists and, mm. and, or tuck their chin down. Some people roll in a little bit more than that. So the embouchure hole is kind of lined up closer to the rods. And then that causes the opposite problem. They have to raise their right elbow. So I do center of the embouchure hole with the center of the first open hole on, on the flute. And then, and I pull the head joint out from the get-go. And I mark my, I would mark all my beginner's flutes. Before you start making your first sounds on the head joint or anything, get their flutes, mark it for, so that when they're, when they finally put their flutes together, it's marked right away. So I pull their head joints out and on a beginner flute, you, you, it doesn't really matter how far you're pulled out. You're never going to pull it out more than like a centimeter. You know, it depends on the brand of flute, but just make sure that they're, you're pulling it out from the beginning so that your flute students see the flute in its assembled position is pulled out a little bit, you know, the, um, anywhere between the thickness of two nickels to a centimeter probably. But then I just make, um, I get it pulled out and I align the center of the embouchure hole. I'm going to say it for an 18th time with the center of the first open <laughs> hole key because it's so important. And then on the back side of the flute, I just make a stripe of, of red nail polish so that they can see where to align it, you know, from right to left and how far to pull out. And I do the same thing on the foot joint. You put the ball of the foot, the rod on the foot joint in the center of the bottom key on the, the body of the flute. And then on the back side of the flute, I just mark it again with red nail polish so that it, you just take out that variable of students trying to put their flute together. And I see professionals all the time, like they play a few notes and then they roll their head joint out and then they play a few notes. No, and then they roll it in. And I'm like, I don't ever have to do that because <laughs> I have this red nail polish on the back of my flute. So it, for me, you never outgrow it. And it is not cheating. It's it's being really smart so that your students are playing the exact same instrument every single day. And then you can teach them good playing position, good hand position, and they, they won't be changing. And the head joint alignment is probably the number one reason for most students' bad hand position, mm. <laughs> surprisingly. So that, yeah, that's, that, that's like my biggest thing. And, you know, and it certainly took me years and years of teaching to finally go, oh, I keep fixing their hand position, but that's just the symptom. The disease is the head joint alignment. So that yeah. was a long answer to that question. No, no, I'm, gl I'm glad you bring that up because I think all of us, you know, beginning band directors have seen a flute player with just this horrendous right wrist position. And then I look at, mm. I look at the head joint and they've got it like usually rolled in some crazy amount. And then they're like compensating mm. with, with the wrist. It's like, no, 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 let's fix this. Right. Yeah. And lots of times, I mean, I was a really good flute teacher when I was young, but I would just try to fix their hand position instead of the, their head joint alignment, you know, and they can't fix it. So, and that gets, that brings us to another topic is I have this song about hand position 
<laughs> it has several verses. The, the verse about hand position is right wrist straight and left wrist bent. Do da, do da. So that means from the knuckles at the base of your fingers all the way to the elbow should be a straight line or a nearly straight line. Some people play with a slight bend, but you see this all the time with the right wrist bent. And that happens when their head joint is rolled out too far or if their right wrist is raised up, but it should be a straight line. Their thumb is going to go basically right under their index finger. I was taught originally to put it under my middle finger. That just doesn't work ergonomically. You know, so it's anywhere between like under the first drill key or the right index finger, or if you have a double jointed student, sometimes their thumb needs to point up towards the head joint. But basically, you know, if I, I teach, it goes right under the index finger, like you're squishing a bug between your thumb and your forefinger. And, that, and then the left wrist should be bent. Or I was just reading a note of, that I found in my office from my old teacher, and she calls it a broken left wrist. And, and that brings the, the um, palm of the flute under, palm of your left hand under the flute a little bit. And the whole goal is to have the flute balanced between both hands so you don't have this death grip. So you can teach that song, right wrist straight and left wrist bent. And it's amazing how many people, I've, I've got emails and they're like, oh my God, I love your song. I just, I sing it all the time. Left wrist bent and right wrist straight. And I'm like, that's not my song. Right wrist straight, left wrist. So I, my students, I'll just go do da, and they immediately fix their hand position now. <laughs> so when the right wrist is straight, it gets your fingers curved up and over the rods, which is a really important thing. And your the thumb should come up towards the rods a little bit. Shouldn't be touching the rods, but you don't want it sticking forward. We're talking about the right thumb. Should not be sticking out like a hitchhiker thumb up towards the rods a little bit. So the fingers are curved gently up and over the rods and make sure their ring finger and their pinky are both curved. And you set them up from the beginning. And then you never have to fix them. Do you teach them to to like kind of sit on the left of the chair and angle their knees towards the right? I have them sit. I turn their chairs to the right about 45 degrees. And then I just have them sit on the front left corner. I don't even have them angle their knees to the right. They just come straight out in front of them. Uh, but the chair is facing to the right at an angle so that, that, you know, your chin should be facing your nose should be facing the conductor or your music stand so your body will be facing to the right like 45 degrees you know but your nose and your chin are facing the music stand and your chin is pointing towards your left elbow that makes sense mm -hmm. you know and for me yeah my 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 foot joint is way far forward it's almost it's about halfway to being a trumpet you know <laughs> if that makes sense and that releases a tons of tension that the flute players often have in their neck and their shoulders, which radiates up into their jaw. And to quote Arnold Jacobs, tension kills tone, you know? So just, just releasing the, foot, the flute away from your body, forward away from the body, will, will let go of all of that tension. And that translates into a much more relaxed tone, much more relaxed technique. Even if you don't know how to teach them how to make a good sound, You've already got them set up for success in how to hold the instrument, and that will go a long ways, you know. And if you know the song "Right Wrist Straight Left Wrist Bent," and you do elbows to knees, you know, then all we have left is how to get the flute on their face in the right place and and get the air going into the the flute. Now, for your beginners who are starting with an open hole flute, do you start with the plugs in the holes? I do not, unless they're teeny, 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 tiny little girls. I'm, you know, and there are some whose fingers are so small they can't really cover the hole. But 
I start with all the plugs out, if possible, because then it's like on the clarinet, like you don't put plugs in clarinet keys, you know, and those holes are bigger than, than flute holes. It, it helps to have an open hole flute because then they, they have to put their hands on the flute in the right place. They have to use their fingerprints instead of like, they have to have good hand position. So I recommend starting with open hole flutes and I recommend starting with the plugs out. Every now and then, if they have really short fingers, I might put one in their ring finger on one or both hands. You know, there's nothing terribly wrong with that. The open hole flute, though, is made to a slightly different scale because when some air is released through that, and I can just demonstrate on my flute, I didn't learn this until way late in life because I thought, oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've always played with an open hole flute ever since I got my first one. But if I play a B natural, I think, wait, let me play an A. And then I'm just going to take my finger and, and cover up the hole and lift it up. You can see I'm not pressing the key down, but it's changing the pitch. So there, there is a slight difference if you put the plug in, especially in number th the ring fingers. But it's not that much if a kid is really, really struggling. If they have good hand position, but they're struggling covering that, then go ahead and, and stick it in there. Some people, there's something called tape is in the word. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a tape that you can get instead of putting a plug in. And that's actually a little bit better. But yeah, I'm not averse to putting plugs in, but it, having the whole open hole really helps them put their fingers in exactly the right place. And especially if you get an offset G, uh, beginner flute, which is what most flutes are going to, you know, and what most professionals are playing on now. It used to be that you played, if you were a professional, you, you played an inline G and that's just not ergonomically very satisfying. So if you haven't, I, I recommend that everybody plan an offset G so that your, your fingers fit the shape of the flute a little bit better or the flute fits the shape of our fingers. <laughs> and then they should be able to cover the hole if, it, if their wrist, left wrist is bent and their right wrist is straight. Well, let's talk a little bit about tone production, because one of the things I remember from our lesson is, you know, like a lot of us band directors teach flute students to start playing on the head joint with like a like a poo sound or like a P sound. And you actually had mm -hmm. me do something very different in our lesson. Yes. My favorite way of teaching first sound is, is Suzuki influence. And by that, I mean, in the Suzuki method, which they really figured this out. Now, they use they have the little baby students put a grain of rice on the center of their bottom lip and then they stand outside, I guess, and they spit that grain of rice using the tip of their tongue. And you can do that. And in fact, I've had some band directors email me and say, oh my God, I actually have my students go in a corner, you know, and spit into the trash can and it's worked really well. I just have them use their imagination. So the way I teach is I tell everybody, sit up nice and tall, like you have a book bounce on the top of your head and your chin is parallel to the floor. That's another verse to my song. Um, Give me your chin, chin parallel floor. We'll get to that. But then I have them imagine that they're spitting a grain of rice onto their plate if they're sitting at their kitchen table. And we do it in, uh, and this is Suzuki. They always did it in this rhythm, hot dog. So it's like short, long, a quarter note followed by a half note. So you're going to use the tip of your tongue in the opening of your lips. And you're going to try to spit straight down on your plate without moving your head. So... And it should sound like that. And you should can probably hear that on this podcast. So right away, you have to take a really big breath. Then you use your tongue. And you're blowing really fast air and you're blowing it straight down. And you haven't even told your students how to do that, you know, and then and I have them do that. And then I have them hold their hand out. And again, without moving their head, imagine that they're spinning on their brother or their sister's plate all the way across their kitchen table from them. 
we'll go back and forth from their their brother's play back to their play to their brother's play and then we'll do it over your brother's head at your mother all the way across the window uh, all the way across the kitchen without moving your hand which is really hard but you know they could you know they get the idea and so what you've done right away without talking about how to do any of this they they're taking a big breath. They're using their tongue to start the air. They're blowing really fast air and they're blowing it in different directions, you know. And I could tell you how we do that. And you do it by moving your jaw down and back and then using your upper lip like a beak to aim the air down, you know, and then to, to blow on your brother's plate, you slide your jaw forward and your lower lip is going to come forward. You aim, you know, and your air goes more out and across and then to get your mother's play which is like playing really high and soft you slide your jaw even more forward so um then i go around the room like when i've started rooms of, of beginners and i place the head joint on each student while the whole room is going <laughs> blowing on their plate you know on their imaginary plate and i move the flute into position and what i'm looking for i'm going to put the the entire embouchure plate, all, it should touch the chin, the dent of the chin, all the like the embouchure plate. I wish we could see in this podcast, but <laughs> all the way down to the bottom of the, the embouchure plate should have contact with the face. If you do that, you're going to guarantee that they're not rolling up. So I, I put it in the dent of their chin and I, and I align the inside edge of the embouchure hole about where the colored part of the lip starts. You know, and if you if a student has really thick lips, you might have to raise it, go a little higher if they have thin lips a little bit lower. But basically, you want it sitting underneath their lower lip, not on their lower lip. And then you want to make sure that the embouchure hole keeps facing the ceiling. So here's um, here's verse three of my song: chin parallel to the floor and embouchure hole facing the ceiling. Do da <laughs> do da. Okay, and that's really really important because you keep this beautiful ninety degree angle between the embouchure hole and the flute and, and the head. And that's that's how the flute is meant to be played. It's really easy to get a sound if you roll it up and in and, and diminish that angle, but you want a 90 degree angle. So you put the embouchure plate under the lip, inside edge of the embouchure hole is about where the color part of the lip starts. The lip is gonna cover, the lower lip will cover about one quarter to one third of the embouchure hole. In the beginning, it's better to cover too little of the hole rather than too much, you know. And then when they're blowing, uh, spinning their grain of rice or imaginary grain of rice, and you're walking around, you want to make sure that they don't roll their bottom lip in while they're doing this. But you go around and you just look, look for their natural opening in their lips. Some people, their natural opening is right in the center. Some of them, it's over to the left. Some it's to the right. It doesn't matter. We do not, we're not all symmetrical. I used to be symmetrical. And I guess I've ground my teeth too much now. I'm off to the left, but <laughs> then all you do is you align the center of the, the embouchure hole on the flute. You align that with the natural opening in their lips. And you might have to take it off and, and put it on a few times, but the sound that you want is this. Which should be an A natural. It might be a flat A natural. You do not want this sound which is an A flat, I think. So, and that would be, that is caused by if you kiss the hole and roll down, for example, or you just roll the flute, the head joint up to find the air string. That's going, you can already tell. I mean, it's caused like a half, half step pitch deviation, which is going to translate to total chaos in, in intonation. As I, I 
put the flute in the the right place for each student. And, and it's just an experiment. You have to experiment and you get in really close. You know, I use my fingers to kind of help stabilize the head joint on their face. <laughs> I wish the audio podcast could see me trying to do this on my, my <laughs> iPad. You put it in and out a few times and then I have my students help me. And so they put their hands on the head joint. And while you're doing this, you want to make sure that they keep their head right where it grows, that they're not reaching forward to, to meet you. Every, almost every beginner will try to do that. You just keep their head where it grows and you bring the flute to their head and you try to teach them that that's how, how we play the flute. We don't, you know, you look at a million pictures of flute players and almost everyone has their head way out. But anyway, so then you move the, the head joint in and out with them, just with their hands on the head joint. Just really make sure you keep the embouchure hole facing the ceiling. The entire embouchure plate in contact with the chin and it's in the dent of the chin. And then I do that a few times and then I let them do it. And you can do this with, with a mirror if you have it. We have a, a link to some really inexpensive mirrors, like it's mirror fabric kind of stuff that you can cut out. You can cut out like a six by six inch thing so that your students can have it. I find, I don't always, I never have made, it has never been 100% important to me that my students have a mirror. Because they can feel this, you know, so it may, it's helpful if they can also see it, but they need to develop this, this physical memory of, of where the head joint goes anyway. So after you've done it, move the head joint in and out a few times with them, with their fingers facing forward, like puppy dog ears, we call it. And I stole that idea. Um, then let them do it a few times and they really can find it right away. So you want that nice, strong. a slightly flat A natural. And it, that pitch may vary ever so slightly depending on how long the head joint is. Anyway, that's that's how I teach beginners. And then immediately I have them, we flutists, unless we're doing the French style of articulation, we should not be tonguing in, in our lips like brass instruments do. I teach tonguing on the roof of your mouth. There are, just, there are two ways of teaching tonguing. Tonguing in your lips, the French articulation and tonguing on the roof of your mouth, the American style. And that's what I teach. So I have my students point their tongue and make it as pointy pointy as they can. And then use their fingernail to scratch the very tip. So it sensitizes it. And then I have them put that, the tip of their tongue on the roof of their mouth. And you can, you'll, as you are speaking with the students, you can see how they're using their tongue because a lot of students anchored their tongue, like, you know, clarinet anchor tonguing, not a good thing. They, they put the tip of their tongue behind their bottom teeth and then they tongue, even when they're talking, they cock, they say teeth like that instead of teeth. So you want to watch out for that because it should be the tip of their tongue on the roof of your mouth. And I put my tongue pretty far back. I put it on that ridge that's about, feels like it's about a part of almost a centimeter behind my, my top teeth. A lot of flute teachers teach tonguing more forward. They teach right where the teeth meet the gum, the root of the mouth. I find that, I mean, I get a lot of students who've been playing the flute for six or seven years and they come here and, and we just experiment because I teach them all how to teach beginners. And then they come back and they're like, oh my God, I put the tip of my tongue further back and my sound really opened up. So that's, I mean, that's just naturally where I've always sung, but it, it's worth experimenting. That's what I recommend that you do. But and you want to make sure on day one, like after you've had them spit the grain of rice, that you immediately teach them to tongue on the roof of their mouth, not in their lips. You know. Mm. But I love it because instead of saying poo or who, which is a lot of people start their flutes that way, if you start with a poo or who, then you have to teach them how to tongue. But if you start 
by using their tongue, that's how they start the sound on the flute. So I, I find like when our students here at, at my university in Woodwind's class, if the teacher teaching Woodwind's class, which is never me, but sometimes I go in and help, if they've taught them to say poo or who, then I have to come in and, and every single, half the class, I would say, is, is still going who, you know? And I'm like, no, use your tongue, start the tongue. The, and they're like, how? So tongue from day one. And my, my old student who did the clinic with me this last summer at TBA, she was like, no, I, it's too much. It's too much for them. And anyway, she started my way, her students this year. And she, and she was like, oh my God, every single <laughs> one of my students got, got a sound on day one and they all tongue. So I was like, I told you I'm right. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> So while we're talking about the head joint, I actually had a question about tuning the head joint. So a lot of us are taught to put the, you know, the tuning rod in the head joint and make sure the little line on the rod is lined up with the center of the tone hole. Is that like a hard and fast rule? And if so, why don't they just solder it there? Like why, <laughs> like, why is it adjustable? Well, I guess, I mean, it is a hard, it's a hard and fast rule. Although James Pelleride, who was one of the greatest flute teachers ever lived, he's, I can't remember which way he said, but he says that you should push in or pull out a little bit. I forgot though. I mean, so yeah, yeah, it's a hard and fast rule, but you need to make sure that the tuning rod is actually correct because I have seen a whole bunch of tuning rods that aren't even close. Like you should be able to line up 10 tuning rods and the lines are in the same place. They're not always, and I'm sure you, I don't know the, the exact measurement off the top of my head. Sure, you can Google it, but that is hard and fast. I don't know why. I think the it may just be a hangover from when they started making flutes, you know, modern flutes with with a plug in the end when they went from the from a recorder to a traverso. But but it does give you a little bit of leeway, you know, if you but for well, let's just say for all the purposes of everybody teaching middle school and high school band, do not tune by <laughs> moving the cork in the head joint. Gather it lined up so that the line on the, the tuning rod is right in the center of the embouchure hole and leave it. So, yeah, yeah, that should be aligned in the center of that. And when, when you're checking, it's a good idea to have your students, you know, teach them how to check it and have them check it once or twice a year because the cork can dry out. And when it does, then, you, then it's really easy, you know, when the kids are bored and they're just twi twisting the crown uh, then that's going to pull the cork further out. And and the further out the cork is, the tubbier, I mean, they're going to sound flatter, but their tone quality is going to be changed drastically. It'll be like dull mm. and I call it tubby. And same principle, if it's pushed in too far, they're going to be sharper, but it's also going to be a more brittle, shrill sound. So um, that you want to check it. And also if the cork is loose, then that means you have a, a giant leak going out the top of the flute. So every single note is not going to have a very good sound. So the cork is really, really important in tone production on the flute. You know, having a really good fitting fresh cork. You know, I, I have mine replaced pretty much every year because I live in a really dry climate. And when I grew up in this dry climate, I would just soak my head joint in a sink full of water. Maybe not the best thing, like, you know, not terrible, but and that's still what I have people do it in case of emergency if they can't get it replaced. So it's it's super, super Im important and it's kind of overlooked. So that was a, a really good question. So, yeah, if you um, if you have to tune, you do it by pulling the head joint out or pushing it in. But I want to give a caveat to that. Do not pull out the head joint more than a uh, centimeter. When you, Once you get past that, you start changing the scale of the instrument. And then left hand notes are going to be more affected by by that. And that means your left-hand notes like B, A, and G are going to be flat compared to the right-hand notes. So, that, I mean, we 
my food teacher friends and I, we were always complaining about the band directors who, you know, their students come in and they have the hedgehog pulled out almost an inch sometimes. It's like, okay, so you played one high F in tune and made the, the wheel stop on the tuner, but everything else is out of whack. You know, B, A, and G are like, a half step flat and D and E flat are in tune. So it, it just messes with the scale of the instrument. If it if you have to pull out more than a centimeter, the problem, I would tell my students, you need to look within. The problem is you, not the instrument grasshopper. Yeah. <laughs> and almost always, you know, almost always the problem with flute players is that they play sharp and it's because they're really tight, mm. you know. And so that's from the very beginning, if you teach using air, 99% air and, and then just let the, the face kind of surround the airstream instead of focusing on this tight, you know, we should be forward and relaxed instead of pulling back, you know, and for me, I preach all the time about the upper lip. You let go of the corners so that the upper lip can release away from the top teeth. And nobody ever taught me that, you know, I finally figured it out. It's like when it's pulling tight, you're going to against the top teeth, going to make it sharp, but it also makes their sound really nasty. So that's, you know, I started out teaching to relax the corners, but the, that's not the goal. You have to let go of the corners, put them in neutral positions so that the upper lip can reach forward so it can play a part in aiming the air. So I have a beginning student. She's been playing for about eight weeks now and very motivated student is learning a lot of songs on her own outside of class. But she is doing that like slight smile with the with the bottom lip curled you know, like, like in that smile shape. And I, I have been trying since day one to get her to frown on when she's putting know. the head joint on and I just can't get her to do it. Do you have any like suggestions or, or tricks of how to break, break that and get more of a flat lower lip? Yeah. I, I, I say, I almost never say frown, but some people do and that works, but if it's not working, then it's like find something else. To say. I say all the time, let go of, uh, release your corners, let your mm. corners go to neutral position. You know, try that. And and I also say to hug the embouchure plate with the lower lip, you know, because you can't hug it if you're smiling, you know. But, but I talk a lot, you know, you can have her try to put some air in her cheeks, which is a definite okay thing to do on the flute. You know, you can do too much or too little of anything, but I play with air in my cheeks because my corners are in their neutral position. And I'm really thinking about releasing my top lip away from my upper lip of my upper teeth and when I do that I'm not holding tension in my corners or in my cheeks and it lets my cheeks puff out and and the beautiful thing is that that creates more of a resonating chamber inside my mouth so without working any harder I get a, a fuller sound a more full sound so so just may I you know I talked about putting the hot dog in the bun that's another way I teach putting the the head joint on the the face so the the flute is the hot dog and the dent of the chin is the bun you do that and then have her you know wrap her maybe talk to her about wrapping her lower lip around her her flute you know, the head joint, hugging, letting go of the corners, you know, or, and I, I just really like talking about the upper lip working like a beak because it's very visual. If you think of a toucan bird with a big beak, you know, it's impossible to reach with that beak and keep your corners tight, you know? So I, I really try to focus most of my time on telling what students to do and not what not to do, you know, instead of saying, stop smiling, you're still smiling, don't be so tense, you know, 
So if saying to frown would definitely be better than to, to say stop smiling. You know? And, and I, I say all the time, just release your corners, neutral corners, you know. So was that helpful? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's really interesting because it's like very opposite of, of trumpet, you know, like you don't want oh, your brass oh players gosh. to puff out their cheeks because then they lose like their flexibility to change their aperture. But when I just saw you play with your cheeks coming out a little bit and I could see the corners like just kind of really relax, that is very helpful. Yeah. So I will definitely be using yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that is tied into that is is the tongue position, you know, and we shouldn't move it around like clarinet and saxophone do where they go to an E position for a higher note. Or it's basically always in an awe position with your tongue. The tip of the tongue, if anything, is on the it, it's in the position where it's released and on the way to go to the roof of the mouth, the tongue. And so if the tongue is in an E position versus an ah or an oh or an ooh, then that's going to pull the corners back. So sometimes having them think, oh, oh, you know, finding, I have them go through the vowel shapes, you know, and I'll just, I'm going to go through A, E, I, O, O on my head joint. You hear the sound change and the pitch change, you know, and you can, you can see my face change, you know. So sometimes the like tight corners, very often those are a symptom of the tongue position. Hmm. If the tongue is in an E, it's going to pull your corners back. So maybe having her and and for me, there's not one ideal vowel. Every student, I had a student last week, a college student who had never had a flu lesson, but I said, so where is your tongue like right now? What vowel shape is your tongue in while you were just playing? And she said, hmm, it's kind of like an, <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting because that's exactly how you sounded, you know? So it really makes a huge difference. Like what's happening with that tongue shape is going to affect the corners of, of the, the lips. So try all of those things, you know, and if you can just, you don't have to be able to play a chromatic scale on the flute, but if you can get your, your head joint out and go right next to her, I keep saying I'm going to put some videos on my website and then on a YouTube channel. I just haven't had time yet, but a video speaks a thousand words, basically. Could you talk about the mechanics of, of how your lips work to create the octave slur? Yeah. So I, I have, I think it's in my handout. I came up with this, this saying, the three Vs. There are three things that, that affect flute sound and, and octave dynamics, intonation, and those variables are volume, velocity, and vector. So volume is the quantity of air, you know, the actual amount of air. We need a lot of air. Velocity is the speed. We need a lot of fast air. And then vector, this is the one that is kind of uh, tricky for non-flute players. Vector is the angle that the air is going into your flute. So in order to play lower or louder, you want the angle to be going down into the flute more. And in order to do that, the jaw needs to slide the lower... The, the jaw. Yeah, we only have one jaw. The the lower, <laughs> I'm going to say lower jaw. Our jaw needs to slide down and back. And at the same time, your top lip comes out like a beak or like a garage door kind of coming out. And that beak is going to aim the air down into the flute. And that's the same exact thing that you need to do if you want to bend the pitch down. Like if you're playing a note and it's sharp and you need to bend it flatter. Same thing. The jaw slides back and the upper lip comes forward so that you aim the air further down. Same thing if you want to play louder, you have same exact same thing. So if you want to play a, a higher octave, or if you want to bring a flat note sharp, or if you want to bring a loud note softer, 
and you go opposite, your j- lower jaw needs to slide forward and your and your lips slide forward, forward. And the further they go, the more the angle of the air goes across. It's not going down into the flute. It's going more out and across. So they work in the jaw and the lips work in tandem, you know. So I'm going to. I'm just in my neutral position. If I slowly slide my jaw and my lips work. Until I, you know, so basically I talk about aiming for your toes to play lower or louder and aim for your nose to play higher or softer. And it takes, you know, things like this we're not born doing. So it's just like you wouldn't make a trumpet player play a high C on their first day. You know, you, it takes some, it takes some experimentation and then it takes the body some time to, to develop the muscles, you know, but it's more about subtlety on the flute. When you work on the head joint, I don't spend, I spend time on the head joint with my beginners. I don't spend a lot of time trying to do a lot of harmonics and things. When they can get a consistent tone and they're using their tongue, then I put that, I don't, I don't like put my hand over the end and try to go and do low, middle, high. You know, the only two notes I might play on the head joint are open end and hand over the end. Anything beyond that is too advanced for a beginner right then. So Mm. I immediately, once they're all getting that really good, almost overblown, like a lot of air going through the flute, that sound, and they're all using their tongue, then I put my the flute together. And I like to just put the head joint on the body, but not do the foot joint. And if uh, Flute 101 is a really fabulous book, it's by Patricia George, and can't think of the other, the person who co-authored it with her, sorry. But anyway, it's a fabulous book. And she has a lot of wonderful tips like this, like just starting, add the body to the head, the head joint to the body, but no foot joint. Then you can hold on to the, the, um, the tube of, of the flute. And then the, all they're worrying about is getting their left hand in the right place. And you start on a B natural. That is the only first note the flute player should do. It is the most <laughs> neutral note on the flute and it's balanced. Okay. If you start on an E flat in the staff or a G on the top of the staff, which was the first note I learned, those students already are having to have an embouchure, like, you know, an upper octave embouchure for the G. And it's too much too soon. You wouldn't make a trumpet player do that, you know. And if you start on an E flat, some people say that's a great note because they already have all their fingers on the flute except for the first one. But then there's only one good note you can go to after that. That's a D. And then after that, everything is hard. So start on B natural. Work your way down. You know, and Flute 101 has really a, a really good progress through these notes but when you get to a g that's where i start doing just an octave slur so they go ah so if you put your fingers on the corner of your mouth in ah position that's neutral just ah then you slide them forward to and the corners of your lips should go from like about one tooth forward from where they start in their neutral position ah then if you do that on your flute while you're blowing And then I put a measure rest in between. I don't try to slur down. Just go up two, three, four. That right there is the secret to playing the flute is to to be able to go from low to high by sliding your lips forward. And I almost always when I have a new student, I the, one of the first questions I ask is, so what do you think needs to happen to go from a low note to a high note? And they're all like, and these might be kids who have played for seven years and they're like, hmm. Something happens inside my mouth or or something like that, you know. I'm getting smarter and smarter kids, you know, but but 
it should be that i mean the angle of the air has to go from going down into the flute to going more across and it's by your jaw and your lips working together i i don't preach too much about the jaw moving to go, to make the octave slur up i preach about it moving to play lower you know but mm. i just do ah to ooh, and the jaw kind of follows along and when you're uh, teaching the initial octave slurs it's not so important that they get a great octave slur but they're really moving their lips from that neutral and moving forward rather than pulling back and getting tighter and, and smiling did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. Let's talk a little bit about intonation difficulties. And this is a little bit more advanced than than beginning. But, you know, a lot of flute players, you know, play flat in the lower octave and really sharp in the higher octaves. Is mm-hmm. that just a natural tendency that everybody has to deal with? Or is some of that a byproduct of, of the embouchure like inconsistencies? It's a byproduct because it's an, it's an embouchure and an air inconsistency, yeah. you know. If they're set up from the beginning and they have their head joint pulled out about, you know, but... If they're studying with me, I I pull I put their head joint in the place that I would have to play it to play in tune, you know. And a really good way to to set set the flute up to to know how far to pull out the head joint. And you need a really good flute player to do this because even a moderately decent flute player won't do this right. But if you if I finger low C and overblow it one octave, then I compare that to the regular C. Should be the same pitch now. So say I'm pulled out too far. You can tell that the regular C, regular fingering, which is a left hand note, is a lot louder than the long C, right? Or if I'm pushed in too far. You can tell the left-hand C is a lot sharper. So there's a happy medium in there. And the, the reason I say uh, this needs to be a really good flute player is if I'm playing and I'm really making sure that I have my chin parallel to the floor and the embouchure whole face in the ceiling. If I tuck my head, well, I'm going to find my happy place. It's pretty much the same pitch, right? But if, if I don't move my head joint at all, but I tuck my head down... a whole different instrument so the the flute needs to be in the right place but then again like just dropping my head and you could see me i didn't like touch my chin on my shoulder i just dropped my chin down a little bit so it wasn't parallel to the floor and that drastically changed the intonation of the flute right because i changed the angle between my head and the embouchure hole so so if the flute is set in the right place where it's playing in tune with itself then if the 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 next problem is if students are moving their head or moving their flute. You know, we should not move your head when you play the flute, and you should not roll the flute in and out. You know, and I remember my band directors, and I only had brilliant band directors, but they would be like, flutes, you're sharp, roll in. That is like the last resort. The first thing you need to do to just, it's the same thing as producing the sound. If, the, if you want to go from sharp to flat, drop your jaw and aim with the top lip down into the flute more. If you're flat, slide your your jaw and your lips forward and blow more across but it's it's more about consistency of of air speed and air volume you know if you're a lot of times if a flute doesn't work very well if it has a lot of leaks 
low notes are hard. Students don't blow enough air. They're, they they slow down their air and they blow less air. So they get this kind of, you know, and then to play up high, they kind of screech, you know, so it's <laughs> like, basically we should be using a lot of fast air on every single note. And then it's air, the vector, the angle is what needs to change. And you have to do it with your embouchure and your jaw, not with your head and not with rolling in and out, you know, and my student, you know, I come from a long line, like we were taught a whole bunch of alternate fingerings and those are great, but you really shouldn't have to use many of them. If you're, if you have a relaxed embouchure that's flexible so that you can change the angle that the air is going into the flute. You know, I grew up playing a whole, you know, every high F I did with fourth F and middle finger F sharp and my pinky off or high E and add five and six for high A flats, you know, and I don't really have to do that. And neither do my students, you know, you need to know, like if you're playing blasting away on a high A flat, and you're playing with a clarinet who's blasting away, you have to do everything you possibly can to bring the pitch down, right? Because they're going to be flat and you're going to be sharp. So I add extra fingers and and I drop my jaw and I make sure my tongue is super all relaxed, you know? And, la- you know, you have to play in tune. So after I've done all those things, if I have to, I might tilt my head down a little bit and I might roll up, but I don't start with those. Those are the, the end of the line, you know? Most everything and it all you can tell if their tone is inconsistent, then the intonation, you know, is going to be inconsistent. So you really, really want to emphasize using a lot of fast air and just changing the angle instead of slow air for low notes and fast air for high notes, you know. It's that if their tone is consistent, the tuning is going to be pretty consistent. Well, uh you saying that really makes me think that I might be like overusing my tuners. So like my kids have like their individual tuners with a clip on mic and Mm-hmm. You know, when when they're younger, I have them tuned to concert F and, and now, now I'm like rethinking like, oh, like they could totally be overcompensating their head joint position to compensate for embouchure issues to adjust their tuning. So maybe I shouldn't be having them move their head joints so much at all. You know, it's, it's like long game versus short game, you know, and band directors, it's almost always short game. You have to have them playing into right now today, you know, and I'm teaching long game all the time. I'm like, I don't care if you're playing out. Yeah, we're going to work on learning how to play with a good sound. If you play with a good sound on every note, then basically you're, you should be able to play in tune. I know that right now my head joint, if I play correctly, I will play in tune at A440. You know, I can play incorrectly and play out of tune, but that is then if I move my head joint, I'm treating the symptom, not the disease. The disease is me, you know? So my, the long game is, is get their head joints set in the best position that you can. If you know what brand the flutes are, most of them, like if they're a flute that's built to 442, then you're probably going to have to pull out a, a centimeter. That's like most Yamahas, except the beginner Yamahas, I think are 440, you know, but if you, if everybody in your section plays on the same brand instrument, you should pull them all out the same way. And then they need to, they should be able to play in tune if the cork is in the right place, you know, and then they, and they learn how to play properly. It's the long game, though. It takes longer. You don't get instant results. But if you pull the, if they're sharp on one note and you pull the head joint out, guess what? They're going to be flat on all the left hand notes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to feel good about that F, but then you're going to wonder why they're flat on their B flats, you know? I am totally going to use that trick you showed me with overblowing the low C fingering and comparing it yeah. to the regular C fingering. Yeah. That was, that was immediately noticeable when you started doing that. 
Right. Yeah. And it, to me, that's the proof. Like when somebody's like, no, my, you know, a band is like, no, she has to pull out this far. And it's like, here's what's going to happen, you know? And if, if I play just a, let's say an F major scale with my head joint pulled out too far. Well, let's do E flat. It'll be more noticeable. Isn't that amazing? Like the right hand notes are, are about a half step higher than the left hand notes. So, and the left hand notes have this horrible tubby quality. Hmm. And I work on tone quality before I work on intonation with my students, no matter what age they are, you know, and beginners should, should be playing sharp. If they're using enough air and then gradually they can back off like five or 10% on the air, you know, and if you've been teaching them relaxed embouchure, flexible embouchure, then they can start learning the nuances of, of aiming, you know, the, the three B's volume, velocity and vector. But, but I always go for in tone, uh, will become in tune better than in, in tune. It's possible to play in tune with a crappy tone. It's almost impossible to play with a good tone and really far out of tune so for me the, the long game is is what i go for learning to play in tone first and then then we bring a good sound to in tune as as they get better at playing in tone yeah that makes sense yeah so when you're teaching air direction do you use numo pros for everybody or just as like a problem solving tool for a student who's having an issue if you i i use them just as a problem solving tool but i have lots of friends who use them with every single student and and they're great there's none i've always because i started teaching before the numo pro had been invented i've always just used my finger and their finger you know i'll I'll put their finger in the dent of my chin. I'm sure, you know, germs and all that, but... <laughs> Not coronavirus approved. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing because it's it's so visual. You just want to make sure that, again, even with a Pneumo Pro, same thing with the flute. You put that penny on the, the, the end of the Pneumo Pro so that they can't roll it in or out, you know, and then... I put a little bean bag or something on the top of my student's head to really keep their chin parallel. Or one of my students says, put your chin on a shelf. You know, I like that idea, except I don't want them to think that they're bringing their chin out to a shelf. But, mm -hmm. you know, chin parallel to the floor. And then if you have the penny on the Pneumo Pro so that they're not moving their head and they're not moving the Pneumo Pro, then they're going to have to figure out that. And I say this all the time. They have to figure out how to bring the air to the flute rather than bringing the flute to the airstream by rolling it up or roll, you know, rolling in and out, you know? So the Numa Pro is great because they, they can visually and orally, you know, get some feedback so they can see the, the Numa Pro spinning, but you want a really high pitch sound from the fan, not, uh, not a low pitch, you know? So does that make sense? Yeah. But I love, I love Numa Pros. I have one of the old ones that was made out of wood and I think those are the best. You know, the plastic ones, your penny falls off the end all the time, you know, but they're, they're really good. So if you have enough for everybody, it certainly doesn't hurt. Awesome. Well, I wanted to ask you about uh, thumb B flat for a second, because this was quite, quite the controversial topic on the middle school band directors Facebook group a couple weeks ago. I heard about <laughs> that. This oh was, my gosh. I think yeah, like 500 comments. Well, anybody who said don't teach thumb B flat, they are wrong. <laughs> and it's not an opinion or a philosophy. There are three fingerings for B-flat and you should teach them all. So I don't teach some B-flat first because the first note I teach is B-natural. And then uh, and then I go down. But the first B-flat I teach is some B-flat. And some B-flat should be used anytime 
there are one to five flats in the key signature. The reason for that is mechanically, the, the fluid, you're only moving one digit, that's your thumb, when you go from B flat to, to C, and your flute is only moving two keys, the thumb key and the key, uh, which is called the B flat key, just just to the the south of your index finger, you know. So mechanically, that's way better. And then when you go from B flat to A, you're only having to put down a finger instead of lift up your right hand finger. So anytime the key signature has one through five flats, stick the thumb on the B flat key, you know. Lever, I teach it all the time for chromatic scale. Always, that's like, so that's the second fingering I teach for B flat is the lever. The, and the third fingering I teach is one and one. And that is the one I use the least. I use lever anytime I have an A sharp, 99% of the time. It's going to be the best, the most efficient fingering. And you can just see, like, if you finger G sharp, A sharp, B natural, or A flat, B flat, B natural, there's no cross fingering. You're, you can put your finger on the lever in advance when you're playing A flat. And then all you have to do is lift up your left hand fingers. And then you lift up the lever to get from B flat to B natural. So it's only one key going up and down from B flat to B natural, which is way more efficient than three keys going up and down, which is what happens if you're doing one and one. And you don't want to roll chromatically from thumb B flat to B natural. That's then the reason, you know, and there's a real reason that genius is Bricchialdi invented the thumb B flat key. It was so that we didn't have to do this cross fingering with one and one, you know, um, one and one. I only use it if I do have something that has my right hand first finger down, like an F natural, and then it goes to B flat and then B natural or C flat, you know, so I can't roll my thumb because I have that B flat to B natural. And I can't use lever because I have my right first finger down for the F. So that's one and one is the least, you know, it should be taught. I have friends who are like, I never teach one and one. And they're so proud of themselves. They're like, you're still cheating your students. You're cheating them, you know, <laughs> teach all three fingers, but you have to teach them the context. Flat keys, thumb be flat makes the most sense. Chromatic passages, lever. Anything that is chromatic with right hand, first finger down, one and one. And, and there's, there's no opinion on it. You know, the reason there's a little bit of controversy is that supposedly Dr. Garner, Gary Garner told me the story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it kind of makes sense. Supposedly there was a flute teacher at the Paris Conservatory and he got really mad because all these students only use thumb B flat. So they'd play a chromatic scale and they would roll their thumb from B flat to B natural. And so supposedly he got really mad. And he took out his screwdriver and took off the thumb B flat key, which I don't even know if the flute would play if you did that, but this is how <laughs> the story goes. And so then, then the students were forced to use one and one and, and lever when they, you know, in a chromatic passage, for example. But and so because of that story, people are like, see, this famous flute teacher took off the thumb B flat key and says that you should never use it. But the the part of the story that they missed was that then. Once the students started using one and one and lever, then he gave them back their thumb B flat and they used all three of them. I don't know if that story is true or not, you know, but I, and I've had band directors argue with me and say, it's just too confusing to teach them all three fingerings. And I'm like, I have never, ever had a student too dumb to understand all three <laughs> fingerings for B flat, you know? And I used to go to my band director and say, hey, Mr. Robertson, what's this this key for? And he'd say, it's a trill key. You don't need it, you know? And there was the lever, you know? And I was like, that is so weird because I memorized all three fingerings for, I mean, all the trill fingerings and I never saw that little key on a chart and it was the lever. And I went to band camp and they taught us that and it was like, 
you know, and I remember when my bandager sat me down and like taught me some B flat because we had learned one and one first and I was getting extra help from him. And it was like, oh my God, this is a game changer. You know, it is, if you want to, yeah, yeah. It, you should teach all three fingerings. Use thumb B flat for flat keys. <laughs> Band repertoires written in, in flats. Yeah. And there's so many times where you're slurring from B flat to A or B flat to C. And it's so difficult to do with the one in one fingering. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a coordination issue and it's also a mechanical issue. Three keys going up and, you know, and what, if you're going from A to B flat, two keys are going down and one's going up all at the same time. Oh, no, it's a disaster. That is not how the flute was meant to, you know, it's like you wouldn't tell any self-respecting saxophonist to not use bis B flat. You know, you wouldn't tell a clarinetist to not use side pinkies and whatever, like, you know, and I'm like, flutists are definitely smarter than clarinetists and the clarinetists can use all of their, <laughs> their side keys and all that. Surely we can do three fingerings for B flat. Now yeah. on that subject of fingerings though, do not teach middle finger F sharp. I've never even heard of that. Flute players do it all the time. It's just like, you know, it's probably comes from doublers. They E natural and then they just do middle finger F sharp. Don't do that. It's a wrong fingering. It's out of tear. It's a dull sound. First finger has to be up on middle Ds and the E flat. Right hand pinky must be on down for E naturals, except maybe third octave E if you need to bring the pitch down. You know, do teach the proper fingering for all the the notes. So, so C sharp, middle C sharp, D flat is only your pinky, your E flat key. Don't it's not with your right hand down. Hmm. That will cause you problems. That doesn't really even change the pitch. People think it does. It doesn't. But it, when you try to play a fast chromatic passage with that fingering going to cause problems. Third octave, teach like high F is just thumb, one, three, and first finger on the right hand and pinky. It's not first and third on the right hand. You know, that will cause problems. Teach the fingerings that are in the fingering chart first. Don't teach alternate fingerings to start off. It, it's a problem in Texas. A lot of uh, band directors have some information, but not the complete information. You know, I'm sure I would be the case if, if I taught anything but flute, you know, but it's like teach the, the standard fingerings first. Let somebody else, a really great teacher, teach alternate fingerings later on. But they're they're just a crutch for intonation. It's better to work on embouchure and air instead of trying to teach these crutches, you know. But thumb flat is not a crutch. Well, the last major topic I wanted to talk about is vibrato. So specifically, when would you introduce it? And a little bit about how would you introduce it? Well, I'm kind of controversial because I grew up, I was in a school, little bitty school, but we were a test school for the breath impulse method. And so we learned by pulsing an eighth of And there are long, a million people who have not done that, who say that's the worst thing ever. And maybe it is for clarinet, but it was fantastic for us because we did these huge breath impulses from day one, basically. And then when it came time to buy break, we just sped that up a little bit. And then, of course, I developed every bad habit possible. But we started out there. I would do it. I don't want to give a specific month, but if all is going well, you know, maybe right after Christmas, maybe right before Christmas. And I would just have them. I, I just have this simple exercise where we pulse in quarter notes. I do this with my college students. I do it with me, but. And then we do eight notes. Do that for a while and then add a measure of triplets and then a measure of sixteenths. But you don't have to go too fast too soon. 
If you can get them doing eighth notes and triplets in the first year, especially triplets are more musical than than eighth notes, you know, but but you have to be to the point where they can actually do triplets. You know, I <laughs> I I think it's better to do it sooner rather than later, you know, for sure the first year. And I also think you should teach double tonguing. I teach double tonguing easily before Christmas, you know. It, even if they're just playing B, A, and G, you can do ta 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 ka ka ta ka ta ka ta ka ta ka ta on one note. It doesn't have to be a lot, but my philosophy and my experience is everything you teach them their first year is easy, and everything you don't teach them their first year becomes hard. And then probably you're never going to have them in in a smaller class. You know, it's like when we got to seventh grade in my little town. Even though we had been doing these really wonderful breath impulse with a pretty good vibrato. Then our band director said, Floyds, we're having tryouts on vibrato next week. And we're like, what's vibrato? And he's like, you know, it's that wiggle in the sound. The high school kids do it. And I so I like, so I went from making a really nice, relaxed, wide, you know, controlled vibrato. And overnight, I came back and I was like, well, I can't do it anymore. You know, I did this horrible nanny go vibrato, but, but then I easily fixed it when I got a really good flute teacher because I had that breath impulse. So I would say start a breath impulse. You can do it pretty early with flutes, you know. You could do eight notes even that much, you know, within a, a, the first month or so. So they're really vibrating that that air column, you know. And and I, I teach a really low vibrato in the beginning, like, huh, like gut puffs, breath impulse. Instead. And even though we know for a scientifically proven fact vibrato happens in the throat, you know, I don't teach it that way. I teach that slow, slow, wide controlled pulse. And then as they are able to control it, it will gradually move up into the body, you know, up to where it needs to as you speed it up. But they'll have the the foundation of the air from doing the big fat pulses. So, so I would say, you know, get it going January, maybe when you come back from Christmas, January, early February, just do a little, you know, my friend Cindy Bullock has had her students always do Edelweiss and she, and she would do it. You know, down press up for the three, four so that they were getting a compound feel and pulsing twice on, every quarter note. And then as it sped up, it became a really spinning vibrato. So the most important thing is, is teach a controlled vibrato, you know, so that pulsing in eighth notes and, and triplets and maybe up to sixteenths, depending on how they're doing it, but don't push it too fast too soon so that they develop a bad habit. So in the context of playing like, like band literature, would they use vibrato on like every long tone or, or just at certain times? I, I, yes, on every long note. Not on eighth notes, you know, moving note sixteenths, you know, but every long note. And what you, you want to avoid them ballooning or starting a, a note with straight tone and then adding vibrato, you know. So in the beginning, like I'm trying to think of a piece that I got, you know, let's just say they're playing in half notes already, like triplets sound a lot more musical, you know. So quarter notes and, and above pretty much are going to vibrate on. Eighth notes are, and faster, smooth, steady airstream. Awesome. And the higher it is, it should be a little bit faster. And the softer it is, the narrower it should be. And the louder it is, the wider it should be. If you follow those four basic guidelines, it becomes a musical vibrato. You know, and it should be in the louder, the wider, rather than 
you know, what you you don't want to start a note with a slow vibrato and speed it up because then it sounds like, like a lawnmower. So with so many of the other instruments playing their tones like straight with no vibrato, what what is the purpose of the flute playing vibrato so much? I, you know, well, I guess it just helps the sound spin. The basic vibrato, it just kind of brings the sound to life. The, the whole point for me of vibrato, like on an advanced level, is using it as an expressive tool. And one of my pet peeves is a, a flutist who just vibrates like you turn on a Hammond organ. It's always the same speed, same width, you know, it just, and I call it an agitation, you know, like we should be ex- using it to express rather than, than to agitate. So, you know, you have to teach the the technique of vibrating though first before they, it can become an expressive tool. And sometimes it that's all that's taught is how, you know, to vibrate. And then, and then that's all they do is they vibrate the same all the time on every single note. You know, and for me, I mean, it's, you know, I play in an opera orchestra, so it's, that's my biggest expressive tool. And there are times if I'm playing octaves with clarinet and French horn, I'm going to choose not to vibrate, you know, because it's the odd man out, you know, but sometimes there's a nice little, if you put a shimmer on it, you know, just depending on the context, it, it, you know, can completely change the sound of an orchestra almost, you know, so um, that's advanced vibrating. (laughs) All right. Well, that was my last big topic. Do you have anything that you feel like we missed that you would want to hit? Did I talk enough about hand position? Like, I know I talked about right <laughs> thumb, fingers curved up and over, you know, like for these things, like every problem that I get with my college students, you know, when they come in having played the flute for seven years, even if they've studied with flute teachers, or whatever, almost every problem goes back to something that wasn't taught well in sixth grade, you know, head joint alignment hand position, right wrist straight, left wrist bent, shoulders relaxed down away from the ears, you know, tongue relaxed, relaxed embouchure, elbows to knees, you know, so that the flute's more forward. Almost every single thing goes back to that, you know, and and being taught that we should play in all 12 keys, you know, for <laughs> as, as soon as we can, you know, but so it's, it's the fundamentals of it. You know, it's like, if I were going to become a middle school band director or a beginner band director tomorrow, I think I would be really good because I would, would call my, I mean, I would call the best trombonist I, I know. And I wouldn't say, how do I play bolero? I would say, how do I teach? How should they sit? How do I teach? How do I assemble the instrument and teach that? Show me how the left hand is supposed to go. Show me how the right hand is supposed to go. Now teach me how to make one glorious sound. You know, it's all the fundamentals. It's not being able to teach high, fast, and loud. The students will get that if you get them set up right in the beginning. So it's fundamentals, 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 you know, and and not just showing them once and teaching, showing them where their hand, their right thumb is supposed to go. But nagging them, my students, like I have a look and they know if I look at them, like they fix whatever. You know, they know if I'm looking at the right hand, they they straighten their right <laughs> wrist and curve their fingers and make sure they're using their fingerprints instead of like slopping off over the edge of the keys, you know, and you just you have to teach them the fundamentals instead of just present it once. And I'm sure you do that. But there's so many people who are like, I told Susie that once, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, like she didn't hear you. She was worried about dropping your flute, you know, so and I think. It's a flute compared to almost every other instrument in the first year, in the first half of the year, you're going to feel they may be way behind all the other instruments. You may have to go slower 
because it takes a little bit longer to figure out how to aim the air, you know, but try not to get all nervous about that and, and get ahead of yourself. Go real slow. Try not to, to move on until they've got the concept and then they'll be able to go fast. You know, they'll catch up and probably pass everybody else, but you may feel you might be behind at Christmas with your flute class. But by May, you should be right up there with them. But if you if you force them to go too fast too soon, they're going to start getting tied embouchures and they're going to start having crazy fingers and all sorts of crazy habits. And I mean, I'm sure that's true for pretty much every instrument, but especially flute may go. It may you may feel like you're going slower in the beginning and that's okay. All right. Well, I have three questions. I ask everybody who comes on the show. So question number one, do you have a mentor shout out? Oh my gosh, I have so many. But my number one is Sally Turk, my flute teacher from undergrad, who taught every single person like they had value, you know, whether you were a great flutist or not. And that's an important, important lesson to have learned and have modeled. And also, she's just the greatest musician who happens to have been a flutist. And nobody's heard of her because she wasn't interested in becoming famous. She was interested in teaching us. So that's my, my biggest, I have so many, Jack King, Nancy Chisholm, Gary Garner, Walford Kujala, you know, amazing. I, I was really, really lucky, but I would say Sally, Sally Turk. Awesomeness. All right. Question number two, do you have a favorite uh, young band piece of music? Um, Incantation and Dance. Is that John Barton's chant? I believe so. I think so. It has really good low flute stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. All right. And question uh, number three, name a band director who's crushing it right now. Megan Williams Seymour. My former student who's in Alvarado, Texas, that I did a clinic with this summer. Crushing it. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fun. Thanks for asking me. Anytime. And all you band directors, feel free to contact me if you have any questions. I promise I will put videos on my, my website <laughs> and on YouTube someday. But if you are stumped, feel free to give me a call, send me an email. You can give, hand out my information and, and I will help you out. That's, you know, one of my passions. Thanks for joining us on The Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.